Hey, what's up, everybody? Uh, this episode is um, is a little different in that <clears throat> I was just cleaning out my computer and I happened to stumble across a meeting uh, that I had with um, John Quint and Dewey Nielsen, who a lot of you know are two of our FRS instructors. <clears throat> and I think we were just having one of our regular kind of weekly meetings and we were discussing an upcoming seminar and we often throw ideas around, uh, you know, how can we present, how can we better uh, get the point across using different examples, etc. <clears throat> so we were in the midst of that and we were also in the midst of discussing a few cases uh, that we were working on uh, collectively. So uh, I'm coming on now to talk to you guys because some of the things we were talking about, because you're picking it up mid-conversation, I, I wanted to give you guys a little bit of context um, so that you understand what we were talking about in the conversation. Because unfortunately, I didn't tape the, I didn't film the whole thing. Um, I don't even remember why I filmed it, but I, I just happened to stumble across it. But it kind of starts mid-conversation, <clears throat> and then it kind of ends mid-conversation. So I, I do think though that there's a lot of interesting uh, things that you guys will enjoy. So that's why I'm putting it out. But just to give a little context, so we were discussing a couple of cases. Um, and, and the cases were as follows. So first off, we do what we, we call, you know, internal training. So the FRS internal strength model and functional range conditioning. Um, there's a difference between what we do and what we refer to as the standard model. And just to quickly discuss, in the standard model or what we call the standard model, we're referring to exercises that are done, named exercises that people tend to know. And if you think about it, why do you know what an exercise is? You know that because somewhere along the line, someone consciously um, uh, confined the variables of movement um, in order to produce a, a, a movement that starts at point A and ends at point B. And in the midst of that, there's particular postures that are supposed to be maintained. And then, you know, you, you get an exercise. So for example, the bench press, when I say the word bench press, most everyone has a very similar understanding as to what I'm talking about, because we know that it's obviously on a bench and you're gonna go from here to there. Um, so these are standard exercises. And in standard model training, when only standardized exercises are used, we often talk about the fact that we're often patternizing our clients um, into doing things um, that they aren't necessarily <clears throat> supposed to be doing, or they might not have the prerequisites to do. Or even simply when we're patternizing using only these named exercises, we're, we're leaving a lot of tissue on the table. So in the internal model, we reverse the, the, the uh, spotlight of training and we take it away from patternized training, not to say that we don't do standard model training. I want to make that clear. Um, all of our athletes are getting, you know, we do squat and deadlift and press and all of these other things, uh, but just for different reasons. But the focus, of course, is not on the external environment, the feet of strength. Our focus is on the internal environment and, and therefore we take a more tissue specific approach to training. Uh, we ask questions, you know, what tissues specifically are lacking capacity that we can put training energy into to raise said capacity such that that capacity can then add to the overall function of the system. So we try to make systematic increases in the body system as opposed to um, patternized um, increases. But uh, anyway, that was my very brief discussion as to the difference between an internal uh, model of training or program versus the standard model of training and programming. <clears throat> Another thing that's important to understand for this um, 
podcast is we're talking a lot about absolute strength training. Um, for those of you who don't know, there's absolute strength and there's maximal strength. So uh, sometimes we use these interchangeably, even though they're not, the, they're not the same thing. Maximal strength is what a person can consciously muster in terms of strength output. So, you know, I put you under a bar, how much when you try your best, how much can you actually um, put out in terms of force output? Absolute strength is the theoretical understanding of if I were able to take all of your tissues and activate them to the utmost extent of the, the possibility of those tissues. So I maximize my nervous system activates all of the tissues involved in that movement to the, the full extent that can be activated um, based on the structure of those tissues. That calculation would be your absolute strength. That would be what is what is possible if you were available, if you were able to harness that much neurological energy in your training. So that's the difference between absolute versus maximal. Now, the difference between those two things uh, is your strength potential. So when you're strength training, what you're trying to do is you're trying to close that gap by raising your maximal strength training uh, in order to try to hone in on that absolute strength. And of course, you're always trying to you know, push the envelope of that absolute strength, or at least we think that you should be. Why? More important than the actual exercises with our athletes, I, I, you know, I, I want to see squats and I want to see this and I want to see that, but I really want to train the, the, the system. When I say the system, I'm talking about my client, the, the complex system that is your client. I want to be able to output as much neurological output as I can. So I need to train people to put out high amounts of neurological output. And, and the reason is, is because when you train people to be able to do that, you can then take that absolute strength measure or you train absolute strength. So you increase the amount of force output you can generate. And then we talk in this podcast about taking that energy and then funneling it back into the internal system in order to raise the capacities of the tissues that are involved in whatever activity you're trying to get better or stronger at. Um, so during this, this, conversation, you'll, you'll hear us discuss the fact that it's important for absolute strength training to occur, no matter what your goals are. Even if, if you're an athlete in season, you, you might think I'm not going to do any absolute strength training because it might be dangerous. Um, but when we say absolute strength training, we're not just talking about, you know, Olympic lifting and throwing around rage. We're talking about selecting a movement, any movement with our athletes, oftentimes for absolute strength, I'm just trying to find out how much their lower body can output or how much their upper body can output in a pushing or a pulling exercise or the same as in the lower body. Um, so really when we do absolute strength training, we're taking a movement that the person's comfortable putting their full effort into uh, with very little chance of them injuring themselves. Why? Because they're comfortable in the motion. It's something they've done often. And, and we're just trying to use it as a benchmark to know where their absolute strength training is. This plays into stuff like deadlifting. There's some people out there, you're using a trap bar deadlift versus a regular deadlift. <clears throat> and they'll talk about the, the cons, the benefits and cons. In this context of training, you know, high level athlete, I, I don't care. What I care about is I, I care that they're comfortable doing that exercise so that they can output a high amount of energy um, so that I can continue to raise their absolute strength until such time as I think they have enough of it. What does that mean? Well, in every sport, there's a force profile that you're supposed to be going towards. So for, you know, if you're a football player and you're a lineman, 
Um, there's an amount of absolute strength that you require in order to execute your stroke, your um, sport properly. But there is a number, meaning that you can spend way too much time increasing these absolute strength measures, um, which otherwise could have been spent in the internal system, building the system to be more robust. But you have to know that number. So, um, you know, for example, if you're a jujitsu player, you're going to have to control your own body weight plus the body weight of someone else. So this is this is how we this is not exactly uh, obviously there's more math to it, but this is roughly how you determine how much strength you need uh, in a particular region of the body. And, and then in our um, training, we'll often take that absolute strength measure and kind of linchpin that um, in, and then take the energy uh, production that you or the ability to produce energy that you that you harness while doing that absolute strength training and then we try to funnel it back into the system um, so that we can get better signals to all of the the tissues of the body that we're trying to to train i hope i didn't confuse things there um, but there you go so we talk uh, a lot about absolute strength training the the need to decide what absolute strength measures are, are are needed and then not wasting time going too high but linchpinning those those uh, those those amounts. By linchpinning, we mean reducing the volume or, you know, there's a difference between training for absolute strength and then holding absolute strength. So we talk in the podcast about, you know, getting to that absolute strength measure, but then reducing the amount of volume spent training for that absolute strength, but reducing the volume to an area where you can maintain that absolute strength while you're funneling the energies into other areas of the body. Uh, what else should we talk about? We also talk about GPP. Um, and if you've ever heard me lecture at a seminar, you, you know that I don't consider GPP in the same way that many others do. The GPP stands for general physical preparedness. Um, in standard model thinking, that usually refers to, you know, you need to maintain some level of balance and flexibility and strength and, you know, the ability to push and the ability to pull. I think GPP should be considered at a deeper level, uh, more at a cellular or tissue level, whereby you make decisions that you need a certain amount of connective tissue um, load bearing capacity, and you need a certain amount of muscular tissue at particular speeds. Um, we talk a little bit about that, about the differences in GPP. I think I'm going to talk, do a whole podcast on um, my, my beliefs or my thoughts on GPP and where we're we're going wrong there, but just to give you some context, another part I talk about is the work order um, of training. And it's just, a, uh, I just say it and then we go to another topic. What I mean by the work order is <clears throat> in the standard model of training, we have these exercises, but the order at which people do the exercises is often very randomized. Um, in our system, uh, we tend to order the exercise based on the evolutionary uh, way that the tissues were actually developed. So, you know, there's tissues closer to the, the core of the body or closer to the central nervous system and tissues farther away. Um, and, and because there's a difference in distance, uh, neurological information is spatially constrained. So that stuff that's closer to the central nervous system reaches the central nervous system quicker versus stuff that's further out. And we kind of use that idea and, and we, we train from an inside to out perspective um, in order that each exercise that we select builds on the one prior to it. A lot of people talk about post-activation potentiation, where one exercise is, is able to uh, harness more out of the next exercise. 
um, but they only think about it from a patternized perspective, whereas we're taking uh, the body and how it sees itself and we're mimicking the work order uh, in terms of how the body processes it, uh, spatial and sensory information. So when we're talking about work order, that's what I'm talking about there. Uh, we talk a little bit about volume and how to rip out volume from someone's program. Uh, oh, sorry, I, I was gonna tell you, we also, there's, there's two cases that we're discussing. Uh, so with that background information, the two cases are, there's one case where the person um, that we were programming for was has been internally strength training for quite some time, but they've spent very little time in absolute strength training. So we talk about the importance of you know, flipping the switch, so to speak. When you're programming someone, you're trying to find out what they need. And often the things that are untrained uh, in that client, that's where most of the potential is. So in this client, he had a good amount of internal capacities, um, but he had very little experience with absolute strength training. That means the amount of um, intensity into the exercises has never been trained to be at a high level. Um, so what we had to do with that client is we had to reverse the role and we had to decrease the amount of internal training and increase the amount of absolute strength training. Uh, and then we talk about the reverse of that, which is mostly the case where people are uh, have never been internally strength trained and they might have only been uh, you know, standardized strength training. That person, they might not have also been doing absolute strength training because they a lot of people, when they train, they kind of take that middle ground of intensity. They never hit the extremely high levels of intensity uh, because they think they can get what they need in the middle level. But what you actually need from high intensity training is the intensity. Um, so when someone has kind of always done standardized middle ground, you know, three by five or three sets of 10, <clears throat> kind of random number type training, they don't hit those intensity levels. So they're never pushing that envelope. So we're really talking about the balance between absolute strength training and internal strength training, how to make the decision uh, as to where to spend most of your time. There's another case we talk about, about, a, a, I believe it's a, it's a jujitsu athlete. And we talk about, you know, they have a bad knee and how that when someone comes to you and they want to train and, and, and become stronger, but they also have these problems to deal with. How are you able to increase all of their strength, but change the focus of the, of the exercises from the standard model of patternized exercises, but not using, but actually specifically training the knee. So in other words, how do we keep the intensity levels and the energy levels at a place where we can improve the athlete, but also focus the energy or funnel the, the, the training into the actual problems they have so that those problems are dealt with as we're building strength uh, simultaneously. So we talk a lot about that. We talk about volume, <clears throat> how to strip volume out. Um, John talks about uh, what he refers to as the training delusion, uh, where, whereby people work hard, but if you break down specifically what they're actually doing, they're not accomplishing much because their energies are being scattered and they're not being honed. Um, I think that would pretty much do it. So anyway, um, I hope you guys get something out of this particular uh, episode. It's just a, a short little conversation that I had. Uh, and now with that background information, um, hopefully you, you, uh, you, you'll enjoy. So with that, I will uh, end my intro and put you into our conversation. So, and that's the thing is they're trying to plug everything in at once. So realistically, if, if you want to make the largest effect, you would see what's not getting trained. When you have someone like the individual that we're talking about, high level of internal based uh, training with no absolute strength training, 
that's why the absolute strength training gets put in. You put it in for, you know, three to five weeks, whenever a combination hits in, you pull those numbers. Now you know how to program over time so that you can always train absolute strength, but you're not training absolute strength like you're an Olympic weightlifter, like you're a powerlifter at Westside Barbell. You're training absolute strength as needed, which technically, realistically, if we're at minimal effective dose and the training is on point, you're talking about one time every other week, possibly one time every three weeks. Mm-hmm. If you remove that, if you go, hey, I'm not training for any absolute strength, and we know that absolute strength is the critical strength for all other special strengths, which are these emergences, we know that we do have to train that essentially at all times. The frequency at which you train it is based off of your needs. And when you're talking about sports that are non-absolute strength or sports that are body weight relative to strength sports, you're talking about training it literally every other week once you've acquired whatever strength level that is. So we've identified a few problems. The first problem is, and I, th- I feel like people get sensitive to this too when you talk to them about it, because when you, when you actually say, show me your training, like, well, you know, I, I do this, I do that. But the first problem that you said is that people are not systematically programming for in time. So when we say you can manage to, to suspend this exercise so that you can put a six to eight week block to fix that knee, people panic as if they're going to lose the effects that they've gained within that six to eight week block, not remembering that in the six to eight week block, you're still going to be doing internal training that will for sure maintain whatever it is you did out here. Like I'm getting a lot of people now they're doing they after we did the thing, they switch right to internal strength only. And then they're like, I can't believe that my numbers not only maintain, they actually increase. I was like, well, right. of course you should believe that. There's no reason you shouldn't mm-hmm. believe that. Right, which, which that's why you see if you can get higher frequencies of internal-based training, which you can, you get higher frequencies of those between your absolute strength training. Your absolute strength numbers will actually increase without actually having to – you will be forced to increase your absolute numbers. <clears throat> right? You, you see what I'm saying? Because in the case that you were specifically talking about, uh, I recall it generally, and the general recall was completely untrained from absolute strength level, high level of internal strength training. So you flip the switch, you go, okay, let's stabilize absolute strength so that we can train this over time. Then what happened was on the back end, the other things that we pushed was connective tissue architecture of the hip joint capsule, connective tissue architecture of the shoulder joint capsule. So those are pushed in parallel. Then as soon as absolute strength is essentially pulled, absolute strength is a pulled, then you have expand capsular workspace and both of those joints will stabilizing absolute strength in parallel. So now you can see the training is starting to acquire significantly more things, mm-hmm. right? But absolute, like it, it's not, uh, you're not like part of, part of the problem that I think the problem that we're going to have is it goes back to like people aren't respecting powerlifters or Olympic weightlifters as sport, right? So they, they can't disassociate the fact that, you know, when you take a powerlifter at Westside and you go, hey, where's he doing his skill work at? They don't understand that he's doing his skill work in conjunction with his training. On one mm-hmm. day, they compress the two. Mm-hmm. And so this is where it becomes hard because people think they have to do all these volume but they don't have to do that volume. They have to do the training without the volume. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They need to get the training stimulus without the volume. 
Correct, right? And think about it. If they do that, then they can train technically more things at a higher frequency because the way the internal mm -hmm. strength model is, it enables you to train all of these other things. So <laughs> we remove the skill-based uh, stuff that the lifter has. Now, what do we get to do? We get to input more internal strength training to train more things mm -hmm. uh, over time. As you start to train all of these other things over time, of course, your absolute strength number, number will go up. And I think the other important thing that you said, which is an important thing we should be bringing up, is that in the opposite, when you do have an, inter, like you said, this particular client who's, who's well-established in internal training, but not well-established in absolute strength, is the idea that pushing absolute strength allows access to force production that is then retrovertedly able to be applied to anything internally. Yeah, I mean, listen, we care about the absolute strength number, but we just care about the nervous system's ability to generate force, because then we're going to use that magnitude of force instead of at the deadlift, then we're going to channel it into the hip, into the shoulder. That's what's really going to push adaptation. Mm -hmm. So we're just using these external based things so that we can add more load so the nervous system can compress itself, generate a larger magnitude of force. The hope is that then that ability of the nervous system to generate a higher magnitude of force then gets driven into the internal system, which then pushes internal training even higher. Mm -hmm. Which is why you see that generally as people get stronger, <clears throat> we say, you know, your shoulder capsule is, is shrinking for whatever reason and we want to build it back. It's very easy to build it back with those people because, you know, in an internal system, we're also working on percentages of perceived efforts. And if people don't know what real high effort is, and they just have their high effort, you know, just like people don't know what fatigue or what failure feels like in many cases, they, they associate fatigue with failure until you actually show them what that is. Yeah. Correct. Let's pretend that we're just going, this is the other problem that Alec, that they were having is that if, if I look at the program they're doing, they just break out, okay, Mark needs knee work and he needs low back work. Then they program FRC work there and there. And then the rest of the training goes back to normal. Like the rest of the training is just adding other stuff in. Or they go, well, I'm not going to deal with the rest of your, your programming. I'm just going to program for your knee and for your back. That's the other thing that I see people doing. But if we go back to Mark, if we do the work that we say we're going to do, you can just tell them, you know what, for your goals, can you, can you do a squat to 50%? Yes. Can you do push-ups? Awesome. Do like fucking 50 push-ups a night and 50 squats a night and you'll be fine. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like that'll get you where you want to be. It's not, it's, there's nothing, what you're in your program, you're not going to get where you think you're going anyway. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so, yeah. And so like, this is the interesting part if, because I, I truly think context is king, right? So when we look at, when we look at Mark, right, we got a jujitsu athlete, middle age, and we know that we do have to train some level of absolute strength, but mm -hmm. you have knee issues, spine issues, prior surgeries, degeneration. So like, like that fact is telling us that he needs tissue-based training at those <clears throat> levels. Mm -hmm. right it also needs that he needs expand space of that extremity etc so we know that we would have to we would have to the training you know as soon as you start to create multiple days or whatever it is you created a hierarchy something has to be number one on that hierarchy what would be number one on that hierarchy it would be knee. it would be that lower extremity it would be that lumbar spine you would do all the programming for that lumbar spine 
after you see how how what type of work he needs the frequency at which he needs that work then what you would do is if there's anything left you would go okay where are we going to fit absolute strength in absolute strength would then go up to the upper body but it would be actually number three on that chart you would still right. be systematically training it but it's not of importance right mm -hmm. then what would happen is once you start to get indicators what are indicators okay hey we got increase of hip joint workspace we got increase of um of knee joint workspace ankle joint workspace we know the internal system is starting to expand <clears throat> okay now maybe what we can do is we can lower that training in the frequency and if he wants to push absolute strength we still push absolute strength but in the upper body mm -hmm. you, you see mm -hmm. you push that absolute strength until you hit accommodation you put the pin in you continue to train that you go right back into the knee now you now maybe because you built tissue you want to change how that tissue behaves load bearing capacity except stuff like this mm -hmm. but that's how the model is, de is designed to be have, used and now you have the neural drive capacity with which to build those things right so yeah so that's the key indicator or that's the key point that that that, that we have to really articulate is one the absolute strength that we're building we're trying to have the nervous system compress in a very short period of time right the ability to generate a large magnitude of force because once it starts to have that capacity, what we're gonna do is we're gonna take that capacity and we're gonna drive it into the knee. We're gonna drive it into the low back. Mm -hmm. That's what we're doing. We, we're recycling. We don't give a fuck about how, how much absolute strength he is. Once he gets to a certain level, we just know the nervous system must be able to train that, must be able to maintain that capacity so that then we can funnel it into the internal strength model. <clears throat> because yeah, I, think, I think to fully understand this, we have to have the context of the individual. As yes, soon as you course. get the context of the individual, now you can, like, it immediately shows you what it needs. And, mm -hmm. and what the majority of people, you know, because I still practice, you know, in regards, like immediately you see everybody needs what? Joint and tissue. Yes. Which immediately push you right into the internal model, which means that those are getting put to the top. The external stuff, which is exercise, not training, gets moved to the bottom drastically reduced so that you can put this volume in and then that volume the, the the internal stuff you know on the back end that it is acquiring the tissue based stuff why because of the maxims of strength and how it is how the the training work is constrained into those specific tissues joint muscle tissue connective tissue to start to acquire that and then that's why you need accumulation phase with that for sure so you know but that's uh, again the beauty of the internal internal model right? You need accumulation. Well, think about it. If we wanted to, we could take three, four weeks, pull, pull Mark from external training, right? Know that we will lose a little bit, but it'll be minuscule and non-noticeable, right? And then be able to use all of that frequency into the, into the internal model. Then, then we can, then we can uh, then use the internal model and then uh, lower the volume, then increase the external back end. But why? Once again, the external is degenerate is, is so his nervous system can get a higher level of force generation so that we can drive it back into the internal system. The other option here to discuss is at minimum, if we get to a point where we convince people that what they're doing seems to be random and you're not really programming your exercising, at the bare minimum, the system organizes your exercising. If you take nothing else, if you just take that list of do this, then this, then this, then this, just to put it into some kind of order so that the body understands what's happening. Even, even then you're, you're, you're going to change. Like, let's say, let's say for someone like who has no real sport, 
they're in good shape. They used to have a sport, you know, they're strong. They just want to be healthy. They just want to be, they just want to feel good. They want to maintain themselves. Well, it's going to look the same. It's going to be dramatically skewed towards internal training, right? And then they can, like, let's take Dewey for, let's take Dewey right now. If Dewey's real goal is endurance training now, Dewey's not going to get that much bigger with the pro, with the training that he's doing. Like, it's not like you're going to, you're going to put on an, an amount of mass. It's not that you even care to put on that mass, but you would still want to maintain some kind of muscular strength. So in your case, you can be technically more lackadaisical with the programming, but you can't be lackadaisical with the programming of your endurance work. Mm -hmm. Because that is where the energies are being funneled. That's the hierarchy. You can say lackadaisical, uh, but I think what you really mean is significantly less volume. Yes, that's so, what I mean. So you, you yeah. can compress yeah. it all into one day. It's yeah. not that it's last a day. It's still training, but you're going to compress it into one day. He may do that day once every 10 days as needed. Once yeah. the athlete starts to understand what the training is starting to acquire from them, you're almost like as needed. You do it as needed. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. But not the internal training. The internal yeah, training yeah. is continued. <laughs> but it does. But even if you don't know what you're doing, as long as you maintain the if you change your idea as to what your GPP is over time and what qualities you need to bring forward, you can't fuck this up at that point. Yeah. Right. Because just work in the order and you're going to hit capsules. You're going to hit your rotational tissues. You're going to hit your linear tissue. Like you're going to get all of these things without even just by running through the orders. You know what I'm saying? Yes. Yeah. I was just writing this down. It's like three things that people are, are missing here. Like they haven't identified anything of what someone needs in the first place. So therefore they have no intent. Therefore they can't create a hierarchy list. So you need to identify what someone needs because identifying is an assessment. So that shows you what they need. And now you have an intent and that's, you know, how, how you're going to get what they need. Mm -hmm. And then you have to create a hierarchy list off of that. And, and the, it's like, that's the three things people are missing. Like if you don't have a hierarchy list, what's the most important thing you need? But if you didn't identify, you don't know what you even need in the first place. Therefore it just turns into this randomness of exercises. Because another thing that we get the, with, with regards to this programming is we go, well, some, they, I have this client and I mean, his ankles messed up, his knees messed up, his elbows messed up, his shoulders messed up. It's like, well, I, I, and then they start programming all of those things in. So then what you see is, they take workouts because no one wants to sacrifice their workout because God forbid you lose a little bit of tricep. So they take the workout and then you pile on more volume, but now mm -hmm. the volume is just for the elbow, for the knee, for the spine and for the shoulder. So now you have, again, you have these lists of, of workouts that, that are like 70 exercises deep. And you're like, well, what do you do for a living? Like, do you just work out? Like, when are you doing all of this stuff? And, and I don't think that, I think that we need to do a better job of explaining that if you focus elsewhere, as long as you're maintaining the energies in the body accordingly, you, nothing is lost. You're mm -hmm. just funneling ed energies in different directions. But from yeah. an energy standpoint, from a force production standpoint, those are very general things that can be maintained, you know, without doing skull crushers every Thursday, because God forbid you lose your skull crusher. Correct. 
Okay. Yeah. And the interesting part too is think about it. The, it, the, like, like we know based off of just how systems behave, the system is always telling you what it needs. So when you're saying, Hey, I got a knee issue. The system is telling you, you have to do training at the knee. Why do you have to do training at the knee? Let's take a look at your, your, your training protocol, which is just probably going to be exercising. What we will see is missing. What do you think is going to be missing stuff for the knee? Stuff for the knee, because I right. can't. I got. I got a squat, man. <laughs> I got, yeah. Got, yeah, it's like standard model people. training. Standard model training like forces standard model thinking. So then they come to internal strength model, and they're still using standard model thinking <laughs> with the internal strength model. Yes, that's right. exactly what. That's exactly yeah, what. standard model thinking. But think about it. I can't remember, Dre. You said it. I I I, I can't remember the quote, but it's always like uh, it, it goes something like. Uh, whatever you're not training per se, you're going to get injured in that range. Yeah, you'll always right. regret not training the thing you injured. Yes. So just a simple heuristic, right? Like, you know, as a therapist, when somebody comes to me, you ask them the question, hey, you got this knee joint issue. What are you doing for your knee joint? Nothing. Or you have to explain to them the stuff that they're doing for their knee joint is just standard modeled stuff where it's not tissue specific training for the knee. It's stuff that requires a need to be organized, i.e. a squat, et cetera, stuff like that. <laughs> Right. And so I think that essentially what happens is you have uh, like I call it the training delusion. People are doing work and I give them credit for doing work. Right. But you have to be doing the right work at the right time. Right. And that's what the internal model should do. Even if you don't understand how to do an FRA, a joint assessment, et cetera. Just the simple fact that like you have a joint issue or a tissue issue the model will tell you exactly what you need to do. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't pull from your GPP. <clears throat> no, it would add to it because your GPP is getting pulled because you're doing SPP, which is the external model-based stuff. And once again, it comes back. I always ask people, are you a powerlifter? Are you an Olympic weightlifter? Yeah. No? Okay, why are you at the training volumes that they're at? Preplin's chart, that's great. Guess what that's for? Not you. Like, 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 even like, 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 think about this way, you know, uh, Medvedev, uh, you, you read Medvedev, who was in charge of Soviet training, okay, to attain high sporting mastery on the Soviet team, you're talking about seven years of training, seven years of training before you could be eligible for that. Okay, that's the reason why those volumes are so crazy. Don't try to take another sports volumes and put it into a general population of individual. <laughs> Yeah, well, yeah. Like, like, and if you do it, technically it's better for all the internal strength practitioners because we'll always be working. <laughs> Here's another thing that like we might think is intuitive, but people, they might think they know the concept, but they don't put it into, into focus is that if I say, what are you training for? You like on Monday, you can't grow every muscle simultaneously either, unless you're in the business of building every single muscle simultaneously, which is an inordinate amount of volume, which, which is, is what a, sport. a bodybuilder is, which is a which sport. Is a sport. <laughs> but anyone else, like if you saw the volume that a bodybuilder does and you put it up against what you're you, you're probably not even at that. Like you're, you're somewhere in the middle. Like it's just a, it's a waste of time, which is why we say that most people that you see in the gym, unless they, you know, they 
fuck around with some, you know, supplementation, they're just about the same now as they are five years from now, as they are 10 years from now. But people have this, this crazy thing that, but they might be able to become as big as a bodybuilder. Like I'm not going to wake up two years from now and be as large as John Quint unless I really, really hone in my training. And I think that people just have a inflated sense of what their training can actually accomplish. And, yep. and that's the major problem. A hundred percent. That's why I call it the training delusion. Yeah. Yeah. Like you, <laughs> I saw what you're doing. You're not, get, you don't have abs by now. You're not getting them. Like, Awesome. You're doing more sit-ups. Awesome. <clears throat> Muscle Meg gave you this new way to do lower abs. Wicked. You're not getting abs. Unless I see some insanely big changes in dietary this and the and it has to be specifically honed. It just doesn't happen in time. I, I think that's a big point. Yeah. As soon as we establish the, the rules of how you structure the exercise. I was just thinking it was funny though, because but what research doesn't ever do is create a systematic way of applying the research that you're reading. Right. That is the one thing that that's why the standard model, we might call it the standard model, but every single individual that we've ever taught has their own version of what the standard model is, because there is no systematic approach. If there's no systematic approach, you can know all you need to know about, you know, you see these guys on Instagram and there's you know, exercise physiology. You can know everything you need to know about exercise physiology and then I give you a particular scenario like we just did, where I give you one guy who's well internally trained and doesn't have absolute strength and another guy who's opposite. And I say, what are you going to do with this person? And the person might would, would just stare blankly back at you. Okay. I like where you're going with this. Uh, you're a hundred percent. I a hundred percent agree. And this is the interesting thing. Another thing that the Soviets would do was every Olympic training cycle, what they would, what they would do is they would post all of the training in the Soviet sport review. Why? So all the coaches could scrutinize it. So what you're saying is, you know, here in the West or here where we're at, everybody has their own model. But in the Soviet Union, that wasn't the case. It would be posted and scrutinized. That's how you saw everyone converging onto this system. And that's how that system was able to grow and get more results. But you're 100% right. Think about it. There's 32 NFL teams. You go to organization A and organization B. You could have the same exact thing that the lineman needs to do training in two two totally different ways. Makes no logical sense. And there's no right? way to, but, there's really no way to scrutinize one versus the other if you don't if you don't have a place to use. Right. Like you're working with no outcome measures.